This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now Michael at LMFM.ie. Tuesday morning, the 31st of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Lisa Smith was born in 1981 and served as a member of the Irish Army from 2000 to 2011. In 2015, she took a journey few people from her hometown of Dundalk will ever identify with. The Special Criminal Court ruled yesterday that Lisa Smith went to Syria because she was was in allegiance to or in agreement with the views espoused by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and found Smith guilty of membership of the Islamic State terror group ISIS. Frank Graney was in court yesterday and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Frank, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I believe it was a very lengthy just uh, judgment. Uh, Mr Justice Tony Hunt took 90 minutes uh, to read out his ruling in the court. Yes, and he did. He did forewarn everybody in the courtroom yesterday that it was going to take him an hour and a half to outline the court's ruling. Um, And he was on the button um, at precisely um, 12 o'clock. Lisa Smith knew her fate. And she knew early on that she had been acquitted of one of the two charges that she had pleaded not guilty to when the trial opened before the non-jury court at the start of the year. And I suppose the main difference between the special criminal court and the ordinary court is obviously that there isn't a jury considering the evidence. The evidence was heard and considered by three judges. So in the ordinary course of things, in the ordinary courts, clearly you would get a verdict, but you would never find out the reasoning behind that verdict. Obviously, given the fact that three judges considered the evidence and came up with the verdict yesterday, they had to outline in great detail their reasons for doing so. And very early on, Lisa Smith knew uh, that she had been acquitted Um, of a charge of attempting to finance a terror group, namely ISIS. And this was through an attempted uh, Western Union transfer of €800 to a man called John Georgelas, who, um, it was accepted by the court, was the one who radicalised Lisa Smith online through Facebook conversations after she converted to Islam. As you say, this was around 2011. She left Mm -hmm. the Irish Defence Forces 
around the same time. Now, she was accused of financing terrorism through that um, €800 Western Union transfer to John Georgia. That's who was a prominent figure in ISIS. He was a propagandist. He was um, also pictured with weapons on social media. So it was widely accepted that he was fighting for their cause too. So but he had been injured, hadn't he? He had been injured, and that was um, that was a prosecution claimed that this money was to be used to quite literally get John George Lass back on his feet. And by doing so, you know that money was intercepted. By the way, it never made it to him. But if it had, the argument was that it was essentially to put a soldier back on on the battlefield for ISIS. Now, Lisa Smith had contended that that wasn't the case. She denied any wrongdoing. There was a personal relationship between them. Um, and it was the defence's case that the prosecution hadn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt that she knew or had any reason to believe that the money was going to be used in such a way. And the court was satisfied and that the prosecution hadn't proven its case to that uh, standard. So they acquitted her of that yesterday. So I sat there wondering if Lisa had been almost lulled into a sense of false security because it would be another hour before she learned her fate in relation to the membership charge. And as we all know now, she was convicted of that. All right. And uh, Justice Hunt weighed up uh, the arguments for and against in that lengthy ruling. He did. And I suppose the, um, I mean, it was accepted that she had travelled to Syria in October of 2015. Um, She came back, she was repatriated back to Ireland, as we all now know, in December of 2019. And it was the prosecution's case that the very act of going to Syria at that time, you know, large parts of Syria and Iraq were controlled by ISIS. And by answering a call by that man, the ISIS leader that you mentioned at the top of the piece, Michael um, al-Baghdadi, by answering his call, he had essentially declared a caliphate or an Islamic state, a state that, you know, fellow Muslims could live in under Sharia law. Um, and that by announcing that, he was calling followers uh, to migrate to the caliphate. Now, Lisa Smith had argued that, you know, it was a religious sense of duty when she decides to travel to Syria and that she essentially didn't know what she was getting herself in for. She had turned, she had been lost for many years, particularly in the army. In fact, one of the main reasons she left the army was because after she found Islam, she had applied to the Irish Defence Forces to wear her hijab and was refused. And in any event, it didn't align with her new religious beliefs. So, she left the army. She pursued her new career with, or her new religion with, with mm. great vigour. And, and, and that was actually how the court arrived at its decision yesterday because it had to essentially get inside her mind and, and, and try and figure out what was going through her mind when she made that trip to Syria. Was it an innocent religious calling or was there something, you know, um, more sinister mm. uh, about it? And, and, and they looked at the Facebook conversations that she was having with this man, John George Lass, and other members of ISIS. And they, they felt that it was clear that she, um, her, obviously her views in relation to, to Islam had gone down uh, a certain path. And they referenced a number of conversations about public executions and, you know, justifications for mass murderers, murders and, and things like that. And they did feel that when she travelled to Syria in October of 20. 15, she did so with her eyes wide open and she knew um, what she was doing when she went over there. There was no evidence to suggest that she had used her military background, for example, when she went over to Syria. But that wasn't, it wasn't necessary for the prosecution to prove that, to prove uh, a motive 
but the court was satisfied that she knew what ISIS was about and she mm. knew what she was getting herself in for. And, and they were able to infer, I suppose, I suppose adherence uh, to ISIS on the back of that. All right, well, it's such a, a long way from Dundalk and not just uh, in terms of uh, the distance in miles, but culturally. And she decided to go to what I think most people and most certainly most women would think would be uh, the worst place any woman could think of going in the world. But she decided to do that. And uh, I don't think that was uh, an easy experience for her to live with. Uh, but do you think that she'd have gone there? You were mentioning, mentioning Facebook messages and that sort of thing. Uh, do you think that she would have gone there or would have been in court yesterday or that there would have been any of the, these things, including, let's say, bombs in Paris or, or in Madrid, for that matter, if it wasn't for the internet? It's a good question. It's a very difficult one to answer. But I suppose what we did in this case was absolutely novel and unique from an Irish point of view. As you say, it's very, very rare. In fact, this is the first time a case like this has come before the Special Criminal Court. So we got a very interesting insight into how ISIS recruiters like John George Alas, um, operate. Clearly at the time, and we heard evidence from you know people who knew Lisa Smith growing up in, in Dundalk and would have described her as quite a lost person, you know, who had maybe suffered from depression and had had a very difficult uh, upbringing. And at the time that she found Islam and read the Quran, she had spent a lot of time, you know, looking for some meaning in life, looking at different religious orders. You know, uh, at one point we did hear that she was even looking into things like fairies and more spiritual uh, things like that. Um, but she did settle on Islam when she read the Quran. She felt like this was for the first time she was reading the truth. Um, and then, obviously, she went searching for answers. You know, Lisa Smith is a very inquisitive person, um, and she was very determined in her search for those answers. And people like John George, last these ISIS recruiters, well, then, you know, they sometimes um, target these perhaps vulnerable people. But, you know, the court was satisfied that Lisa Smith did engage in, in these conversations. You know, I, I'm reminded of... Um, of an exchange in June of 2014 that was referenced in, in the ruling yesterday where Lisa Smith queried and questioned the mass execution of soldiers and people walking down um, a street in Iraq, I think. Um, and, and she was told that, you know, they were commanded by Allah to strike fear um, to their enemies and, and beyond. And she was told that, you know, John George that said that he had no problem cutting off people's heads for that very cause. And her reply was very interesting and it was something that, you know, the judges did rely upon yesterday. You know, her reply was, LOL, who cares about the soldiers? And Mr. Justice Tony Hunt in his ruling yesterday said that that comment was particularly offensive given her own military background. So in the space of a few years, it's incredible to think, Mm. you know, how far Lisa Smith's mindset had gone. And I have no doubt that there are lots of other men and women who probably found themselves in a similar situation. The difference, I suppose, is Lisa Smith then took that decision to travel to Syria. We don't know. We got a rough idea of, you know, places she traveled to, places she stayed in um, while she was in Syria, but we don't know precisely what she got up to. Um, She had argued that, you know, by the time the Allied forces were coming to defeat defeat, uh, ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and she claimed she was fleeing from, you know, bombings in cities where the prosecution had argued that if you trace her movements towards the latter stage of her time in Syria, she was running with 
ISIS and, and not away from them. And again, that was something for the court to consider. To consider. Okay, well, she was in the dock yesterday, obviously, Frank, uh, but uh, possibly to the surprise of some people upset, visibly upset, crying in the dock yesterday. Yes, I, I think it's fair to say that she was um, quite visibly upset. Um, again, and, and, and through no fault of the court, it was just the way they decided to present their ruling yesterday in chronological order. You, know, you did get a sense that there was that um, moment of relief for her when she was told that she had been cleared of the um, accusation that she had financed uh, terrorism. And the maximum penalty for that offence would be 20 years in prison. So, you know, there must have been an element of, of relief and, and almost that sense of false security because it took another hour before Mr. Justice Tony Hunt got to the concluding paragraphs um, in relation to the other charge, the membership of ISIS charge. And it was only towards the very end of that that it became clear for us on the media bench and no doubt also for Lisa Smith that it wasn't going to go in her favour. Mm. And, and when Mr. Justice Tony Hunt eventually put any doubt to bed and convicted her of, of that charge, she did become very upset. She was wearing a hijab in court today. It was, in fact, the first time that I saw her not wearing a face covering because this trial was conducted earlier in the year during, during a time where face coverings were mandatory in courtrooms. So it was very hard to get any sense of emotion sketched on Lisa Smith's face during the trial because she was wearing her hijab head covering and also her face was covered by the mask for COVID purposes. There was no face covering yesterday and you could see tears just streaming quietly down her face. She didn't make a sound. <clears throat> she didn't budge. But after a while, when it was clear that the tears were not going to stop streaming, she turned her back to the courtroom. She faced the dock. Um, it was hard to make out if there was anybody actually there for her in support of her yesterday. That's not to say there wasn't, but it just wasn't very clear. But there was a moment after the judges had risen where she was very clearly on her own. She was standing in the courtroom before one of her lawyers came over to console her. Um, there was a consultation with her lawyers outside court afterwards and she left with her lawyers then a short time afterwards. She um, will remain on bail uh, ahead of a sentence. She was on bail throughout these proceedings. There was um, a, um, a brief time when she was repatriated back to Ireland where she was in custody, but she did successfully apply for bail through the High Court. She has a young daughter to look after and we heard that she has been doing so and living a quiet and peaceful life in Dundalk while all of these proceedings have been going on there was an objection to bail yesterday, obviously given the fact that she has now been convicted of a criminal offence. Um, but in the end, it was decided the best course of action was given her good track record in relation to meeting previous bail up, um, um, conditions. She was allowed to continue and to remain on bail until her sentence hearing, which has been scheduled for the 11th of July. Yeah, guilty as charged uh, and uh deemed by the court to have been a member of a terrorist group, namely ISIS, uh, that sentence, as you say, in about six weeks on the 11th of uh, July. Uh, what kind of sentence is she potentially facing? That's another really good question because, again, this is the first time somebody has come before the courts um, on a charge like this. We're all very familiar with um, cases before the Special Criminal Court involving the membership of, of domestic terror groups, the likes of the IRA or the INLA. You know, we've seen lots of people. That was one of the main reasons the court was set up back in the 1970s. Um, but this is a unique case. Now, there is a link with that legislation that deals with um, um, membership of domestic terror groups and the maximum sentence available to, to, to a judge 
when somebody is convicted on the back of an indictment, which is the case here, is two years in prison. So, so that is the maximum. But you would imagine there would be an awful lot of mitigation offered on her behalf um, when the case comes before the court in July, particularly the fact that she is a young woman with an otherwise clean record. She also has um, a young daughter to look after too. So all of these things will undoubtedly be put before before the judge. But she has been now convicted of a crime and she did contest that charge as well. So she wouldn't be entitled to the benefits that somebody who had pleaded to a charge would get in, in the form of a discounted sentence. So I suppose we'll no doubt hear both arguments when it comes before the court in July and the court is likely then to maybe take some time to consider what an appropriate sentence for Lisa Smith will be. Okay, thank you indeed, Frank. As always, that's uh, Frank Graney, our courts correspondent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, the Dublin Airport Authority apologised for the chaotic scenes that we all saw in the airport on Sunday. It has said that it will try to do better and it has also offered all sorts of excuses for what happened. We, we can't see those scenes again. We have a bank holiday weekend coming up and it's important that whatever issues arose yesterday, whether it was staffing or anything else, that they are dealt with and, and obviously measures are put in place before the weekend. Indeed. That's the Minister for Justice, Ella McEntee, speaking uh, to LMFM yesterday. Uh, let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke. A very good morning to you, Darren, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, of course, this isn't a, a problem uh, that showed its head first time round on Sunday. It's been going on for months on end and peaked on Sunday, and God knows what's coming down the line. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the real concern, uh, Michael. And, and the the challenge, I think, um, is is to provide people with reassurance because um, I think it's it's certainly the case. And we heard people attending the airport yesterday up to six hours in advance, more than six hours in advance, and uh, that has that has an impact. Of course, if that happens um, this weekend, it, it will have an impact on on, on, uh, on the flow of people through through the airport. But you can understand why people uh, will do that because they're not confident that they will get through in a in a timely fashion, and they're afraid they'll miss their flight and and uh, miss their their holiday or miss uh, whatever uh, event they're they're travelling to, and and you know with, with with huge implications and inconvenience and and frustration. Um, we, as you say, um, this has been an issue going back to uh, March and Easter time. We, we mm. spoke about it before. The transport committee was in with the the DAA. The DAA are before the transport committee again. To Tomorrow. What questions have you got for them tomorrow? Because that'll be a very interesting meeting. Well, in the in the first instance, um, my my question will be what went wrong on Sunday? We knew, we knew there were problems. We knew from mm. March there or, were or problems. Have, or have you worked it out yet? Because uh, they've been very slow to understand what went wrong. No, absolutely. And, and that's, a, that's a major problem. And, and you know the piece where, you, where, where you're hearing that, well, we didn't know how many people were arriving mm. or we, um, you know, we, we didn't have enough staff uh, 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 rostered um, or, you know, is it a case that, that people didn't turn up? We know they're indicating ringing in last minute sick uh, or not taking up overtime uh, but there's a a problem apparently uh, with staff getting paid 
Exactly. Yeah. So, so we hear that as well that there was, you know, a possible cyber attack and implications for, uh, for that for for overtime. Uh, people not getting paid overtime, so therefore people don't volunteer mm. for for overtime. Of course, at the, at the root of all of this, uh, um, and you know, I would hold DAA accountable for it is a spectacular underestimation of how quickly uh, aviation would recover and international travel would rebound and and recover and. and I would point to two things, um, Michael. You, uh, I think, any of your listeners will know. I certainly, during the pandemic, you could hear people saying to you, "As soon as restrictions are lifted, I am, you know, taking mm. that holiday. I am getting out of here. I'm going away, getting a break." Um, so it was clear that there was pent up demand. And then the other factor I would say is that, you know, the, the biggest uh, player in the market in Ireland is is Ryanair, probably the, the most aggressive airline on the planet. Um, those two factors alone would say to me that if, if, air, if, if international travel was going to rebound strongly anywhere, it was on the island of Ireland. And I think DAA um, grossly underestimated. They, they let you know they cut too deep. They let too many staff go and are struggling. And, and I think how, how many did they let go? They let a thousand go, and, and they can't yeah. take them back on, can they? Because uh, they've received redundancy packages. Uh, could the rules on that not be changed so that they could take on the people that they let go? Yeah, no, I think that's something that they have pursued um, to, to go back to those people. Um, but of course, the terms and conditions are, are significantly reduced. Um, we, we know that. Um, we know that there are challenges in terms of you know the, the the recruitment and training processes. There are restrictions around guard clearance, the extended guard clearance, the the training program. But they've, they've, mm. they have, uh, and that's what we heard in March that they they were trying to shortcut each step along the way. Um, but yeah, for but you, you're guaranteed twenty hours work, uh, but you've uh, to be on call for forty hours, uh, and you might not get paid. Uh, and if you do, it's. 14, 14, yeah. 14 euros, 14 cents. And, and imagine the work that, uh, you know, imagine the conditions in, in fairness to the staff there. You know, they're coming in to do a day's work. Um, imagine uh, the, 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 the conditions that they're putting up with um, because of the, the, the knock-on frustration and annoyance of, mm. of, of people. You know, I, I wouldn't imagine that. I, here, I know for a fact because uh, security staff are, are, are contacting us and my mm. colleagues you know, outlining their frustration, they're really disappointed um, that that you know they're they're in the the, the headlines, um, mm. and, and they would you know I think understandably uh, point towards the, uh, you know a very difficult period during the pandemic, and you know they want to get on, they want to deliver a, a top class service, but you know I, I think understandably they well, point they to management. Well, they have to suffer people's annoyance, uh, and you know it's probably a surprise that there wasn't a riot on Sunday at the airport. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people, what happened was cruelty. It was torturous. Yeah, and I I can only just imagine it, Michael, I think, like, those are the conversations people are having. They're saying, well, what if it was a wet day? And imagine, you know, you're there with your kids and you're Mm -hmm. hooking bags around and, you know, you want to run to the toilet or, you know, and and the clock is ticking. You have a gammy leg, you have a bad back, you know, you you, you didn't get much sleep. 
different. Yeah. Thing. I mean, you're. I mean, you could say maybe you should have got to bed early, but you're paying top dollar for a flight, and this is not the sort of thing that you should have to expect. No, absolutely. And and, and look, I, I think it is. You know, Dublin Airport. It's hugely important in our region, Michael. It's hugely important in the island of Ireland. It has a, a, an essential function to serve, and mm. it failed on. You know, the, the the it failed entirely in relation to that, and that's that's completely unacceptable. And and we know that they they have plans. They've got a five point plan, and 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 to point to there was crisis in in March. Um, they have improved on the service. Um, they were say 94% of people get through in, in 45 minutes, 80% of people were getting through in, in, in 30 minutes, but on Sunday... They, they gave us those figures, Michael, to the Transport Committee last Friday. You know, they were pointing towards the number one priority for them, the improvements that they had made. And then on Sunday, um, for a, a number of reasons, you, you, you see the, the impact it has and uh, the, the damage to the reputation of the airport and also to... You know the sector uh, uh, on the island is is you know it's, it's completely unacceptable, and that's the that's the seems to be the the very fine margins that they are operating within. But I would say, Michael, it's it's you know the uh, uh, the first question I will have tomorrow is how what went wrong, what happened that um, uh, led to this absolute shambles of a debacle on on Sunday and you would need absolute guarantees that it's not going to happen uh, again. But, uh, like, and and mm. I think it is a matter of, you know, contingency after contingency. So where was the contingency to deal with the, the scenario that they had on, on, on Sunday rapidly? Um, they, they didn't have it in place. And you, you can't have that again. We're going into a bank holiday weekend. Um, people will be understandably nervous and anxious and panicked by what they saw last weekend. They, everybody wants to get away. Um, we, we, we need clear uh, assurances from the DAA um, that, that this is, is under control. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, based on past performance, that is a big ask. Is it time for the Army? I think that needs to be on the table, Michael. I think, you know, and, and, and if, if not the Army, some other additional capacity, um, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be at, at security, but... Um, People are guarded vetted. Who, who exactly, yeah. Working, or, you know, yeah. is, it, is, it, is it staff from, you know, like Cork Airport is under DAA? Uh, can you bring staff in from there? Can you re-divert uh, traffic to Cork or, or Shannon or uh, elsewhere? I think in the first instance, you look at additional capacity that you can bring to Dublin Airport, there's staff at at Cork. There's other people, as you said, at Garda Vetted. There are people that you know perform uh, you know civil uh, duties in terms of security, in terms of marshalling. Um, I would literally put everything on the table in terms of of that capacity and have it ready and on standby. Such should such a scenario arrive again, as as happened on on Sunday, because we 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 simply cannot have it. Okay, well, the DAA will be taking questions from yourself and other members of uh, the Transport uh, Committee uh, tomorrow. Uh, and we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Fein spokesperson on transport. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we seem to have gone from one crisis to another in recent years. Uh, the biggest of them all may be coming down. 
the track with a shortage of potatoes. Let's speak uh, to John Carroll, a local uh, potato farmer and uh, chairman of Louth IFA. And uh, a very good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. People will read in the Irish Times this morning that there's a shortage of potato seed. This is to do with Brexit uh, and how 50% of seed was imported from Scotland, apparently. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on your show this morning. Yes, I'm a bit of grower here in County Loud, and Brexit is the big the big thing going forward. Um, we were importing a huge amount of potato seed, um, five or 6,000 tonnes maybe a year from, from Scotland, um, because they had deemed to be better at it than, than us or whatever. Um, so with Brexit... We have to get ourselves organised to grow the seed, to get the varieties right, um, our traditional varieties, care pinks, um, golden wonder, British queens, and rooster, which was um, bred in Oak Park by Harry Kill, which one of the, probably the best varieties on the supermarket shelves at the moment. So the, um, we have to start to grow more of our seed in Ireland. There is a few growers in Donegal mm. that grow seed and fairly successful at it. The weather sometimes doesn't be very, very good in Donegal come September, October time. So they do have been a bit of other getting them harvested. Yeah, and uh, I, I read in the paper that uh, there's fears that it'll take years to bridge the gap. Tops Farm uh, seems uh, to be uh, where a lot of the focus is on on providing the seed that would have otherwise come from Scotland, but that will take time. That will take a bit of time, yeah. Look, at, we, you're going to have to start with, with mini tubers. You have to get them, you have to um, and grow them out. It takes the, you only have one crop per year, so it takes three or four years to, to build up stock. And to get it onto farms and to get to get it multiplied the whole time, so it takes it takes a bit of time. Um, we have been pushing the Minister for Agriculture on on a bit of um, aid to get um, get the, the knowledge. Like I'm a potato grower, I am not a seed grower. Mm. I would buy all my seed. Um, and, um, it's mad. It, it, it's mad that you know the Irish potato as such uh, won't be available because of, of Brexit and a shortage from uh, Britain. Uh, and uh, I mean, everybody loves their spuds, especially this time of the year, coming into the new potato season and all of that sort of thing. But h- how serious is this crisis in terms of supply? Uh, could it be difficult to get potatoes, or will the price go through the roof? Ah, oh, look, at, you know, the probably price will not go through the roof. The price um, needs to be a decent, decent price at the same time because the cost of growing. To, to get seed, we will get enough seed. Um, our Irish Potato Marketing Board would have enough or, to get us by. Um, but then again, you have to look at the other end of the thing. That's, there are flowery potatoes, there are table potatoes. That's the fresh market. That's what all them varieties of are. Um, but on the other hand, where you have all your chip shop, that's all imported and that's getting very dear. So you take all your chip shops, then potatoes are, are they're all English or Spanish, mm. Cyprus. They are all getting, they're all getting more expensive. It's more expensive to transport them and they, it's getting, it is getting more expensive the whole time to do work 
Um, and, so and, and, and not just um, the potatoes for chips or crisps for that matter. I, I see 40,000 tonnes of fresh potatoes uh, were imported to supermarkets last year. Uh, from, Engl- um, from, from, Eng- from England alone, apparently. Look, I don't know. I, the Department of Agriculture would probably come up with a different figure. Mm. Um, it's very hard to put a, put a handle on what is imported. What's mm. imported that we know you about... You wonder who's is, buying them. You'd assume it's English people buying English potatoes because they don't compare at all, do they, John? No, the, the, dry, <laughs> the dry matter is completely different. Then again, it's variety. Yeah. Um, the chipping one is, is um, you know, Maris Piper, Marquis, they are your chipping varieties. That's what people like. They like white chips, and that's what that variety will do. Oh yeah, so they, they, that's a different a different market, different growing season, and it's, it's a different. We're we're talking about the fresh market, and um, that's where that's where we are. That's where we need to get keep getting our care pinks, our golden wonder, mm. British queens, and our rooster, and they're the ones we have to keep keep on the table. That's what the housewife likes. She likes to buy. Um, and likes to buy I, think all, I, think, I think all of our family like it as well, John, for that matter. Yes, uh, but you, re- you, you, you reckon there'll be a, enough potatoes this year to satisfy us? There will all, be enough yeah, potatoes yeah, this yeah, year. Yeah. Um, yes, there will. And this is the World Congress, Potato Congress, has been held in Ireland this week, oh. uh, which started yesterday. And um, there's, there's several um, meetings or conferences around Dublin, um and there's also one in Portadown on Thursday. There's one in Dublin on Friday. Um, so there is there is the, the people that know how to grow potatoes and how to grow seed and how to produce seed. And all them people from all over the world, or Europe, they are here this week. Very good. Um, perhaps uh, there's an opportunity in that uh, as well. John, I have to leave it there because I've run out of time. Okay. And thanks a million for talking to us. Uh, no this problem morning. at all, Michael. We talk again. Thank Cheers. you very Thank much. You. John Carroll, uh, local potato farmer, is uh, the chairman of uh, the IFA in Louth. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties will be, for, be before uh, the Oireachtas uh, Justice uh, Committee today when it will tell members that the coroner system in this country is in need of serious reform. Let's hear why. Duran Ansborough is uh, the head of legal and policy for the ICCL. And a very good morning to you, Duran, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. And you have uh, some serious uh, concerns uh, about how this system is failing people in this country. Uh, perhaps uh, you'd tell us uh, the story of two young men, both 23 years of age, uh, who lost uh, their lives. Adrian Moynihan in Cork City and Shane Tuhi in Brosna, in, in the River Brosna in County Offaly. Uh, and uh, their family's experience of uh, the coroner's court. Uh, and uh, perhaps you'd start by telling us a little bit about Adrian Moynihan, if you would, because his death uh, was some time ago in 2001 and I think uh, as I understand it the family still have a a lot of questions about what happened to him. Yes good morning Michael. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is just uh, for your listeners the coroner system is there to help us uh, understand why and how uh, someone died when the death is either unexplained, it happened suddenly or it happened in in violent circumstances Um, and obviously uh, such a process is incredibly painful for any family that has to go through it so it's really important that the coroner system, the way inquests are held, are done in a way uh, that are, 
that's both efficient, that helps families get to the truth and to answers, um, but also is done in a way that's compassionate um, and, and that doesn't re-traumatise families. Now, unfortunately, you know, we have, we, we, we published a report last year and we spoke to many families who have found that the system hasn't given them the truth, the answers, the peace they need. And um, as you say, there are some um, very tragic examples um, that, that, that we've addressed in our report and that we're, um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that we're, that demonstrate really the failings of the system. And Adrian Moynihan, of course, is, is one of those. Mm. Um, Adrian, unfortunately, died in 2001 from um, a restraint asphyxia, which means that he was rest- restrained in a manner um, that he could, couldn't breathe. Um, and unfortunately, he died. Now, when the inquest um, happened, uh, the family was was very um, disappointed and also, um, I suppose you could say, um, you know, they felt justice wasn't done because the the inquest returned a verdict of death by misadventure, which effectively means it was just an accident. Um, But, you know, if you think about uh, what, 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 the, the level of restraint that's, that, that, that is required, I suppose, to, mm. to actually end in a death. It's, it's very unlikely that it was simply an accident. And, and this, was a, th- this was in a nightclub, was it, Erin? That's correct, yeah. And their family has have been um, campaigning now for over 20 years mm. um, to, 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 to get the truth of how Adrian died, but it's, it's, it's never been uncovered. And I think his father went saying, on hunger know, strike outside of uh, the Dáil for some time, didn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And I mean, this is just one family of, of many who are saying, you know, the system is just simply not fit for purpose. Um, and one of the problems is, you know, it's just an incredibly uh, unprofessional system and, and, and simply isn't the public service that we need. Um, we, we What we need really are the resources to create a service that is, um, you know, has fully trained coroners. There's, you know, full-time coroners. They're properly supported by a secretariat. But at the moment, it's simply ad hoc. Mm. And families are, are often, you know, felt, you know, what, what, what we were told in our research is they often feel um, left out in the cold, essentially. They are, um, they're, they're not given the information they need. They're not um, included. They're not provided with, you know, the legal supports or mm. the kind of counselling that any family would need going through such a process. So there's significant reforms needed in this system to make it fit for purpose. A, a tragic story. And as you say, the family left asking really difficult questions and in a really difficult position because they're asking those questions about how a young 23-year-old went out on a night out to a nightclub and died by asphyxiation. Uh, but it was considered to be a- an accident when they feel that there was probably more to explaining the cause of death. Uh, Shane Tui is a- another 23-year-old. Apparently, he was working as a, a turf cutter and he was also on a, a night out. Uh, this was back in 2002. Uh, but he didn't come home uh, and it was a week later after he'd been missing for that week when they found his body in the river. Yes, another extremely tragic um, story, uh, Michael. And, um, you know, again, we have family who have been left without answers. Um, they felt they were treated extremely badly throughout the inquest process. Um, and what they saw um, and what they've told us is that there were very 
um, questionable practices that 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 were uh, you know that 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 happened during the inquest, including um, uh, potentially witness statements that were made to Gardaí um, had disappeared. Um, you know, other witnesses uh, basically said they um, they they didn't make the statements that the Gardaí said that they did, um, and the the inquest itself didn't take didn't take any of this on board. So. You know that family again were were left feeling that the uh, the truth simply wasn't uncovered, um, and they've been left waiting for answers, demanding a new um, a fresh inquest for over twenty years. But that hasn't happened. Okay, uh, the coroner's court is uh, the coroner's court. Uh, it's not a court of law uh, uh, as people would understand it in terms of. Uh, evaluating um, if somebody was responsible for somebody's death uh, it it will uh, as I understand and correct me if I'm wrong Duren explain the cause of the death Uh, should it have more scope in terms of the verdicts that it can deliver well, we're not saying, you know, I mean, an inquest is different to a court of law. And the main difference is they're, you know, they're not trying to find or allocate liability the way a criminal court would or a civil court would. What they're trying to do is find out what happened um, in effect, get to the truth. Um, but what we're saying is even to do that, to get to the truth, the coroner system inquest, they need to be more professional in their approach. Currently, coroners don't necessarily have any legal training. We think that's um, that's almost incredible because it is it is in all effects um, you know a a legal process, even though the procedures are still rather ad hoc um, and based on practice rather than actual laws. But you have a lot of procedures that that are. Um, you know that are effectively legally uh, legal in basis. So evidence needs to be tested. For example, um, witnesses are called. Um, the coroner gets to decide who does give give witness statements, um, and all of those things they require uh, a a person who is legally trained who understands these processes. And that's not what we have at the moment, for the most part, um, across the country. Um, and what we also don't have is a system that's family centered so you know what we what we've heard is families you know have have turned up haven't really been told what's going on what to expect um we even had a family to, you know who said refreshments were provided for the gardi and others but not for the families who were kind of didn't even have a place to sit down in some places so this is really um you know, it's it's just mm. not good enough when you think about how painful and awful that process, this process is for families going to find out why and how their loved one died. Mm. Uh, and that's one issue you have. Uh, another issue you have is uh, when recommendations are, are made and what follow up if there is any follow up. Yes, exactly. I mean, um one of the most important functions for the wider society that that coroners that inquests have is they can identify patterns where for example deaths have been caused because of failures in an institution whether it's in maybe in a hospital they don't have the proper procedures in place or maybe it's on a road there aren't enough signs um or you know uh, traffic lights to 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 to, to slow um, speeding slow outside down. of schools carrying knives exactly. on the street uh, any of these things and they may say well stop that 
uh, and any th- of these things. Yeah, we and read about it on the front pages, and the coroner recommended it, and so on, and then that's exactly. the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a proper mechanism for looking back at what coroners have recommended um, in order to ensure that the similar those um, kind of deaths don't happen again, and that's a significant failing in our process. Okay, you'll uh, make these points uh, undoubtedly uh, to the Justice Committee members today. And thanks for joining us this morning. Duran Ansborough is uh, the Head of Legal and Policy for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Now, thanks to Seamus Indundock, who was on the telephone to us. And he said, I was listening to your show yesterday about the situation at Dublin Airport. And it really beggars belief that the powers that be don't foresee that there will be a huge spike in numbers travelling abroad this year because of the lifting of COVID restrictions. Most people haven't been abroad for years, so how they didn't see this coming is beyond me, says Seamus. And thank you uh, for sharing uh, that thought with us, uh, for that matter, Seamus. Uh, another call to us from Anne-Marie in Drogheda, who says, I would have thought that security at an airport would be considered to be a very important job. You need the employees who are doing this job to be on the ball so that they don't keep us all safe, so it's vital that they're paid well and have good working conditions to entice people into to jobs. From what I understand, many of those who were doing the job were made redundant during COVID and you can't blame them for not wanting to go back if they got more secure jobs in another industry. Uh, I don't think they can go back, Amory, and that's one of the, the problems because they got a redundancy package. Uh, but if they could go back, maybe they could get experienced staff uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and that's one of the points uh, that's uh, being made uh, about the current uh, staffing crisis. Uh, and apparently people from the DAA who have no training in security have been called in to fill posts and we've seen all sorts of problems including assaults by members of staff on members of the public not to mention the guns getting through and all of that it seems as though uh, there's one crisis at least in the airport if not more than one and quite possibly uh, a number of crises in the airport John and Navin in touch with us saying I don't know where we're going in this country I had a friend who came to visit from America. Uh, he went to hire a car for nine days and it was going to cost him €3,900. <laughs> God almighty, you'd buy a car for that, wouldn't you? Three, rent a car for €3,900. Uh, for one night in Dublin with no breakfast, it was going to cost him €909. <laughs> My word. Uh, and I, I, I don't know... I, I'm, I'm not laughing, laughing. I'm laughing uh, in shame, I suppose. It's a dreadful situation, John. Uh, he says his wife is on holiday now and she got a stake for fourteen ninety five in uh, the Canary Islands. In Ireland, a stake is €38. Euro. How is this possible when they have to ship the stake to the Canary Islands and in Ireland it could uh, be put onto your plate uh, from a farm uh, uh, that's uh, down the road? I don't know, John. That's the answer that uh, I have for you, if you are asking me. But I'm sure uh, some of our listeners might have some thoughts on all of that. And thank you uh, for asking those questions. Michael Reed on LMFM. And this evening, uh, the Dáil will debate uh, Sinn Féin private members' motion on rising food prices, which come on uh, the back of everything else going up in price. And uh, Sinn Féin will argue uh, that the rising price of food food 
and groceries is forcing many families to go without. Uh, and you can see it for yourself, uh, they say, because of uh, the increase in the number of families who are looking for assistance from food banks. Let's uh, speak uh, to the sponsor of this motion, who is Sinn Féin TD for Roscommon and Galway, Claire Curran, uh, who is also the party spokesperson on social protection. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're talking about putting money directly into people's pockets. Good morning, Michael. Yes, this is one measure which we have brought forward and we have brought forward a number of measures in recent months to tackle the cost of living crisis. This one in particular, this proposal, is a proposal to push €200 of a cost of living cash payment into the pockets of people with income of up to €30,000 and a payment of €100 for individual incomes between €30,000 and €60,000. So this would cover workers and also those who are relying on social welfare. And it is, it is just as you say, to put money back in people's pockets to assist them with what is now a continuing cost of living crisis. And the latest we're seeing that now is on the shelves in our supermarkets. We know that food prices are up over 5% in the space of just the last year. And we know that workers and families are making dif- difficult decisions in relation to heating and eating as costs continue to rise. Mm, they would be very difficult decisions uh, and you don't envy anybody. Uh, these payments of uh, €200, Euro, that would be a, a one-off payment, would it? Yes, it would be a one-off payment uh, to individuals. So you take a couple, uh, both in low-income jobs or, or one that's maybe a carer and one working, they would see a payment of €400 Euro into their household. So it is about giving people money at a time when costs are continuing to rise and incomes haven't moved, mm. particularly in relation to wages and social welfare payments as well, which are deeply inadequate to begin with. So this is just one measure, but it's a measure we want to see rolled out. We know the British government announced a cost of living payment just last week. We know the US have also taken steps uh, to roll out these cost of living payments that are targeted at those that need it most, both workers and those who rely on social welfare. And I think that's important because we need to look at workers as well and low-income workers in particular who are getting mm. up, they're paying the taxes and they're struggling to meet, meet basic needs week to week, which is concerning. Okay, uh, so that would be four hundred euro for a, a couple uh, whose income is less than thirty thousand, or is it a joint income of sixty thousand? No, so it, it, this would be based on individuals' income. So if you have a couple, uh, they're both earning less than thirty thousand euro. It will be a payment of four hundred euro, mm. and where the income then is between thirty to sixty thousand, it'll be a hundred euro. But it is based on individual income. Um, we got these figures through the CSO and through revenue to make sure that it's not only for those on social welfare and obviously we have those okay. figures but mm. it's also for workers. But it could be up to €60,400 uh, and it could be up to 120000 that you'd be giving €200 Euro to couples. Uh, that's that's correct. Mm. So an individual income of 60000 okay. yeah. uh, And uh, would your proposal include any sort of means testing? No, uh, the, the, only, the only measure is that you would, as an individual, any individual in Ireland earning or taking an income of 60000 or less would receive a payment. Uh, anyone above, any individual earning more than that wouldn't receive a payment under this. And again, th- this is just one measure of, of a range of measures we have been bringing forward in recent months. Okay. Is it targeted? I mean, if you're talking about... Uh, giving €200 Euro to a, a couple, let's say, who have no mortgage, live in a, a big house and have plenty of money in uh, the bank and uh, they are earning 125000 uh, between them. Uh, is that prudent? 
Well, look, it's it's as targeted as we can get to some degree. Like we do want to try and aim this at workers. If we go to households rather than individuals, you are limiting it. You could have a household with an income of 30,000. They would get a lot less. So it is one way of targeting it, albeit it's not perfect. And I mean, it's hard to get perfect when it comes to targeting payments. Mm. That need them, but no individual earning more than sixty thousand will receive a payment. You have to draw the line somewhere. That's not to say, you know, there are people in in higher income or middle income jobs who will say, you know, they're paying their taxes, they're paying their high rents, mm. high mortgages, high childcare, and there are many people out there that are struggling. But we have to try and draw the line somewhere, and we want to see these payments in particular going to those low-income households and that's who we're targeting that because the measures to date by government haven't been targeted. They've been mm. really broad, like the 200... Oh, OK, because I was just going to ask you, Claire, what's the difference between your response and uh, the response from government uh, about a universal payment of €200 Euro on ESB bills? Well, the, the government announced a €200 Euro electricity credit last December for every single household in the state, regardless of your income, obviously that payment went to people who uh, wouldn't even notice their electricity bill. It wouldn't make a dent. So, I mean, th- that payment was very broad and it was broad for the simple fact that the government don't have the data in relation to households in energy mm. poverty, which is really concerning given energy poverty is growing. Uh, we also know millions of euro in relation to that was spent on giving the payment to holiday homes. Mm. We don't agree with that. And while it's not always easy to target payments, this is mm. one way we can do it that doesn't give it to everyone. You'll have to it's forgive me, but, uh, but I think your explanation sounds very similar to that of uh, the government's uh, in that it can't be perfect. There's no perfect way of doing it. And uh, those who are on uh, middle incomes are also paying tax and they're struggling and so on. These are all the things that the government have been saying about the way they've gone about uh, trying to get money into people's pockets. And they say uh, that rather than make it complicated and delay the whole process, Uh, they're just giving it to everyone rather than saying well you know do you come into this threshold or that threshold yeah but then you're not targeting it like we are targeting it to some degree any individual under 60,000 will get a payment any Mm. individual over that won't the the 200 year electricity credit could have been targeted it could have they could have looked at people on the fuel allowance and broadened it out from there they didn't do that they gave it to everyone which Mm. wasn't targeted I think there's a big difference between targeting it to people based on their income versus just giving it to everybody and to cohorts of people that didn't actually need it in the first place and to holiday homes where people aren't even living in the country. So that's not targeted, it's not prudent and it doesn't go to people who actually really need it. And we know that people are really, really struggling. We know Social Justice Mm. Ireland released a report yesterday, almost a million people in Ireland. But would you prefer to give people €300? And I suppose the point that I'm asking you, uh, or the question I'm asking you is, could you not give people three hundred euro who really needed it, rather than giving two hundred euro to a couple earning one hundred and twenty-five thousand between them who have a big house, no mortgage, and loads of money in the bank? Well, look, as I said, this is just one measure. We're looking for cost of living payment. If the government wanted to give three hundred euro and reduce the bans, that's great. We'll welcome any measure that they'll take. But our point is, we want to see a cost of living payment. We want to see money being put in people's pockets. And we want to see whatever comes from government, we want it to be targeted at low-income households in particular, and particularly not just those on social welfare, but also workers, low- and middle-income workers who are struggling, and we know that. So we want to see targeted measures from government to people who need it most, rather than universal payments and measures that don't actually assist all of communities. So, for example, on heating, we haven't seen anything in relation to home heating oil, mm. which the majority of rural households rely on to heat their homes. Likewise, the measure on public transport, totally irrelevant to most rural communities who don't have public transport. So we need to see targeted measures 
that will assist those who need it most and that's what we're looking for. Okay, is it, is it good? like there's no doubt, I think everybody will agree that uh, there's some people who, and quite a lot of people who are facing real hardship a, a, at the moment uh, and I, I suppose the argument uh, as things stand is how to help them, how to give them some sort of assistance but is it going to get worse? Uh, do you believe that the decision made uh, by the EU Council last night uh, is going to make energy costs more expensive uh, because of uh, this partial ban on Russian oil into Europe? It, it doesn't appear that that's going to impact us necessarily, certainly as regards supply anyway, but costs absolutely. And I mean, people are already wondering and worrying about the winter period and we're just coming into the height of the summer season. So people are worried and it does appear that costs are going to get higher. Inflation is due to reach up to 8%. So things are going to get worse. Groceries are rising now. We've seen diesel and petrol, despite measures from government, they're now higher than in some cases they ever were before. So so people are struggling and we are seeing a growing levels of poverty in Ireland as well. And, And that's really concerning. We know that there are certain cohorts of people, older people, lone parents, people with disabilities, who are living in consistent poverty. We saw that in the figures released by the CSO two weeks ago, poverty increasing within those cohorts of people. So that's why we really need targeted measures for people that really need it the most. And they are making those tough decisions every day of the week. But we also have a problem where workers who are getting up early in the morning and paying their taxes, they feel like they're paying for everything. They're getting nothing. Everything is increasing. Their income isn't. And they are not... uh, you know, they're not getting through this cost of living uh, crisis unharmed in relation to all of this. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, Your motion will go before the doll this evening and thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on social protection, Claire Cram. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Tony and Trim has been texting the programme and Tony says that he's fed up. He's fed up listening to our so-called leaders telling us about getting the right people, paying them mega wages and pensions for running the likes of the airport, the banks and the HSE. And he says all of these things are a shambles. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Somebody else in touch, Tony in Louth, uh, who says regarding Lisa Smith, it seems unbelievable that a sentence of 20 years would have been the maximum sentence uh, if she had been found guilty of uh, sending money to this group. Yet uh, the sentence for being a a member of ISIS uh, is just two years as a maximum sentence. uh, And uh, Tony, very curious uh, as to why that is uh, the case. Uh, Text then uh, as well um, from... um, I beg your pardon, it's John uh, who says uh, that uh, he was surprised uh, at uh, the text earlier on uh, about the cost of living and uh, how people can afford to pay some of uh, the prices that have been asked, uh, whether it's for car hire or stakes or hotel rooms, it is beyond him, uh, especially uh, if you think about that hotel room for €900. Uh, That would be the equivalent of four or five weeks dole money. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a protest will be held outside of Lencer House uh, today from 12 until 2 o'clock uh, this afternoon. It's been staged by the National Traveller Mental Health Network. Uh, the protest is over discrimination and the impact that it is having on the mental health of the traveller community. 
The suicide rate in the Traveller community is seven times higher than that of the national average. 82% of all travellers have been directly impacted by suicide and 11% of all deaths within the community are by suicide. Who is accountable? Who is accountable for the mental health crisis that our community has faced and continues to face? Who is accountable for the numerous reports that were compiled and left lying on shelves gathering dust? Irish travellers are 80% unemployed compared to the general population at 12.9%. The travellers are not benefiting from any back-to-work schemes or any initiatives that the government have come up with so far. In 2010, there was a report done by Minute University that showed 41% of employers wouldn't even employ a traveller. Who's accountable for 91% of travellers live in school at the age of 16? compares to 25% of the general population. Who's accountable of 28% of travellers live in school at the age of 13, compares to 1% of the general population? 57.2% of traveller men are educated primary school level, compares to 13.6% of the general population. 13% of travellers are educated to secondary level, compares to 70% of the general population. Traveller women remain the most disadvantaged in the years of education. It is estimated 92% of traveller women leave school before completing second level. Since the foundation of our Irish Free State, Irish travellers have and are experiencing cultural denial, in fact, cultural genocide. Quite evident in state official policy of 1963, which set out to find the final solution to us as a nomadic people. Who is accountable for the intergenerational trauma that this inflicted on us as a community, resulting in 11% of all our deaths being by suicide? Who is accountable for the erosion of our nomadic lifestyle? Over the past 40 years, there have been numerous reports, recommendations, commitments, promises, review bodies, task forces, uh, and yet there's a complete lack of implementation of the many policies and commitments that have been made uh, that could have had a positive impact on travellers' lives. Yet no one is held accountable. Infant mortality for travellers is 3.5 times the rate of the population. Four infant deaths from every 1,000 national population. We have 14 infant deaths in the traveller community per 1,000 in the population. Accountability. Who is accountable? Who is accountable for the homeless crisis within the traveller community? Who was accountable for the traveller families who are living in overcrowded, unsafe and unserved accommodation? Who was accountable for the traveller families who are shearing of housing and shearing of bays within sites? In 2022, travellers continue to experience individual and institutional racism on a daily basis. Travellers are denied access to shops, cinemas, restaurants and pubs at an alarming rate across the whole of Ireland. You know, many of us, unfortunately, uh, had to bring young children, young men and women, and bury them at the side of the grave and ask the question, why? The real answer to that question is, from my perspective, from my opinion, unfortunately, I had the, you know, the tragedy of burying two of my brothers, my sister-in-law through suicide, and a lot of young cousins. And I see my whole community right now bringing young people and, and young men and women to the grave and burying them. You know, we need to understand that this has been done to us and um, constantly trying to, to deny us 
equality in Irish society has destroyed us as a community. That's Mags Casey. We also heard uh, from Maggie McDonough, John Paul Collins, Nancy Power, Rosemary Mohan, Thomas McCann, Mary Cassidy and Bridget Kelly explaining to us why they're protesting outside of the Dáil today. Let's speak to Hugh Freel, who's a member of uh, the National Traveller Mental Health Network uh, and uh, indeed Donegal Travellers Project. Good morning to you, Hugh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, All very strong testimonies given there by members of the network on uh, the Facebook page. Uh, But... I, I think a lot of us will be struck listening to Mags talking about burying members of the family. And this is the concern that you have about the impact of discrimination, which is endemic in Irish society. It certainly is, yeah. And we're protesting today around the systemic racism that's happened in our traveller community. Um, you can see by the, here by the, the interviews there by the members of the traveller community how in depth the mental health and suicide rates within, within the community, um, the unemployment rates, the health statistics, you know, and we're calling this government to, you know, recognise that there's a crisis within the community. Uh, time and again, we heard people there say, who is accountable? Uh, do you care to answer that question? Well, the counter, the, the, who's accountable? The government has to be accountable. They have to be accountable for some of the systemic racism and in-depth uh, uh, mental health issues and suicide rate what's happened in our community. Travellers are down seven times higher than the general population. So when you put that into contents of what's really, really happening, um, and I remember this happened to the fireman community one time, um, and they put in all the services within the march, they put in counsellors, they put in bereavement services, they put in, you know, different services that, that, that supported the fireman community, and rightfully so, because the suicide rate was high within the fireman community at the stage. This kind of actions and strategies that they need to take uh, accountability off, they also mm. need to take a county bill off of, of meeting the network, the Taoiseach, uh, in relation to what we have to say and what our solutions is to the, the, the projected problem that we have uh, uh, with suicide and mental health. Uh, am I right in thinking that there are solutions uh, and that what you're asking the government to do is to dust off those reports that are being lying idle on shelves for years? That's basically what we're asking. There's loads of specific uh, um, strategies around the travel community. There's millions and millions of pounds being pumped into the travel community in relation to, to you know, uh, theoretically these, these strategies. What's happened to these strategies was sitting on the shelves and the recommendations and the consultation happens with the travel community, how, how these recommendations should be um, fared out. But the issue is that they're, they're, they're not being uh, uh, followed through. There's mm. no full commitment on them. Okay, why is it that we hear uh, of members of uh, the traveller community? Do you think, I mean, I'm not sure that you know the answer, uh, but why is it that we hear of uh, members of uh, the traveller community who are are barristers, I think there's quite a a number, or uh, uh, have very high-powered jobs or have uh, done this and the other, and others are leaving school so early or aren't able to get a a job at all? No, they're not. And it's like, you know, the the, the 83% of the traveller community is unemployed. There's 13% employed in travel organisations, and you've other 3% maybe in mainstream employment. That uh, some of them that have to hide their identity off the institutional racism and the stereotypical views about travellers in the community. So it's very, you know, um, problematic to be in that space in relation to your own mental health. 
to hide your identity and, and to listen to some of the, the, the systemic racism and discriminative comments in the workplace about your community. Um, and this leads on to suicide, leads on to serious mental health issues, it leads on to you know, multiple issues. Um, and there are solutions around it, and I think the government just needs to take on board an action plan, a strategic action plan regarding what the network is saying, what the advocates are saying. There's a whole lot of members of the traveller community like myself who's articulate, who left school early, who can, you know, um, influence policy, influence the, the, the strategic plans that the government might en- en- enact. Uh, but we need action. We need action, and the, co- the government needs to take accountability of what's happening to travellers on the ground. Right. Uh, why are there st- stereotypical views of uh, members of uh, the traveller community? Uh, w- what do you think uh, is behind that? I- is it uh, fear? Is-, is it a lack of trust? Is it a-, a-, a lack of understanding, a lack of, of knowledge because uh, people from the settled community don't know people from the traveller community? I think there's, there's incidents to that, but there's also there's also acceptable racism within Irish society, and it's acceptable to be racist towards the traveller community, to be discriminative, to be derogative around travellers, to talk inappropriately in workplaces, um, uh, social settings, you know, education settings, you know, we have teachers, uh, guards, uh, different uh, 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 private bodies, you know, talking directly uh, racist about travellers, and this influences. The community, we our politicians. We had Peter Casey run for president. Um, you know, and people, uh, uh, the society see if, if these leaders and, and people in power can talk directly uh, and talk inappropriately about my community and get away with it with no sanctions, then it's okay in society to talk directly about my community. Uh, can you do anything to break down that stereotypical view? Well, I think so. I think a lot of a lot of the community, you know, uh, in relation to uh, us, uh, we have a lot of those activists uh, were employed, you know, and we're trying to make change and we're trying to build, uh, you know, uh, relationships with the wider community and to stop this inaccurate, stereotypical views that travellers don't work, that we don't respond to society, we're you know all antisocial behaviour, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's typical stereotypical views that the society has that they're holding on to about the travel community mm. in relation to us, you know, going forward. Um, but there's hundreds and hundreds of us uh, trying to make social change, trying to make social, you know, influence uh, on the community in relation to what's happened in our community. If you look at the education system um, in terms of our young travellers dropping out of school early, going on the daybreak, this and the initials, the travellers don't get a proper education. Um, and when tra- members of the community get older, can go and get degrees, PhDs, masters. Uh, so what failed them when they were 8, 9, 10, 11, 14, 15 years of age? Mm. They, they weren't, you know, the, the yeah. analysis is that they weren't, uh, uh, they hadn't got the ability to stay in school. But when they're 19, 20, 21, they can go back and get a degree and go on to get a PhD. So, you know, on reflection and review of that, the, the government, they need to take accountability. Okay, uh, and you're, I mean, there's no arguing with anything that you said, Hugh. There's no doubt about that, uh, and uh, that there is uh, this stereotypical perception, and racism uh, is part and parcel of life in this country, whether you're a member of uh, the traveller community or the settled community. We all know that, and we all know the reasons why. Uh, and I think to a large degree, uh, the reason why is based on the limited experience uh, that members of the settled community have with members of uh, the traveller community uh, and that the stereotypical view that they have of the community is based on 
the actual experience limited and all as it may have been with members of uh, the traveller community. Would that be a fair comment, do you think? I think, uh, well, it is and it isn't. And I think that, that, that the media has a lot of role to play in relation to, you know, this, this portrayal of travellers. Well, Facebook has, you know, um, unluckily allowed the, 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 the racist comments of, you know, traveller videos or traveller uh, um, being put up and being scandalised by the separate community and, and Facebook trollers, Instagram, Twitter, you know, has a lot, a big role to play in terms of racism. Um, you know, if you look at the, you know, uh, 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 the Ukrainian families coming into Ireland, they're enduring a lot of racism discrimination by the, the wider community in relation to taking over, taking over, mostly taking over the hotels. You know, these people have fled a, a war as a duck for sanctuary. They shouldn't be facing discrimination because they had to leave the country and look for uh, uh, being in the hotel room and get the backlash from Irish society. Um, and, you know, and I'd be solidarity with the Ukrainians, I mean, solidarity with people with LGBTs, with, with uh, people with disabilities uh, and other ethnic minority groups. And I think that as a society, we need to learn how to be diverse. We need to accept people's differences. We need to accept people's cultures. Um, because as a society, we need to move on from that. And I think we're just too in-depth in our own uh, culture, Irish culture, of keeping everything the same and keeping the same boys and the same uh, jobs and keeping the same family network within, you know, the parties. Okay, well, you'll make your voices heard. I'm sure they'll be heard loud and clear today, Hugh. I hope it has some impact and improves lives for members of your community. And thank you indeed for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's Hugh Freel, who's uh, of uh, the Donegal Travellers Project, representing the National Traveller Mental Health Network. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally that perhaps you can assist with. And we're joined uh, by Garda Olga Bacon from Trim Garda Station for this week's report. And we're going to start with a burglary. There's a a number of burglaries to report on uh, this week. The first of those in Grangerath. Good morning, Michael. Yes, on Tuesday the 24th of May, between 3 and 4 a.m., a house was broken into in the Grangerath area. Now, the occupants were sleeping in the house at the time. A number of items were stolen during the course of that burglary. Would you have been in the area during the time and seen anything suspicious or possibly have dash cam footage? If so, Gardaí at Laytown are looking to speak to you. You can call Ashburn Garden Station on 01801060 and your details will be passed on to the investigation team. Okay, and uh, we've a, a similar story uh, again about a, a week ago. Another burglary, this one in Dulik. Yes, again on Tuesday, the 24th, between 6 and 7 p.m., a home was broken into in the Dean's area of Dulik. The suspects spent a number of minutes in the car, and we believe they left, or sorry, in the house, and we believe they left the area in the car. Did you see anything suspicious or out of the ordinary? If you have any information that might help with the investigation, we're asking you to contact Gardaí at Ashburn Garden Station on 018010600. Okay, to Clarehead next, uh, and uh, a couple of burglaries uh, that occurred over the weekend. Yeah, so Friday, um, 27th of May, in the, into the early hours of Saturday morning, two men entered a takeaway on Main Street in Clarehead, and they got away with a sum of cash. So we're just looking for people that might have been in the area between 11.30pm and 12.30am. Um, a short time le- later, now not necessarily linked, but a short time later, a second burglary was reported at the beach hut and extensive damage was caused to that property. Investigating Gardaí are looking for witnesses to the incident or anything suspicious happening around that time. 
you can contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200. Okay, we go to Dundalk next. You're hoping somebody might be able to help or have some information about some damage that was done to the old bridge. Yes, so in the old bridge area, um, overnight on the 24th of May, we attended a scene where work and farm vehicles were damaged overnight. So Guardians Dundalk are looking for anyone who may have seen or heard anything suspicious to contact them at Dundalk at the station on 042-938-8400. Okay. Uh, and uh, I suppose it's just coincidental, but around the same time, some damage was being done in the Fair Green. Yes, across the Navan. So Guardian at Navan Garda Station are investigating a number of incidents of criminal damage to vehicles parked overnight in and around the Fair Green area. A number of vehicles had their windows smashed. Again, if you saw anything in the area, or possibly if you had dash cam footage, if you were driving in the area overnight, we're asking you to contact Navangard Station on 046-907-9930. Okay, I, I know you want to talk to us about drink driving, uh, but you also want to talk to us about drug driving this week. Yes, so over the past seven days, Gardaí across Loud and Meath have arrested 11 drivers on suspicion of driving while under the influence of either alcohol or drugs. A number of these jar- drivers will either be issued with a fixed charge penalty notice or summoned to appear before the court. There's no safe limit when it comes to alcohol or drugs when driving. And we urge drivers to make arrangements to get home safely and not to put their lives and the lives of others at risk. There's a bank holiday weekend coming up. We will be out on the roads, we will be conducting checkpoints and we will be arresting people for drink and drug driving but we just don't want, don't let that person be you. Okay, and that also applies to people, of course, uh, the morning after. I think sometimes people, people can be caught out the morning after. Yeah, people think that it's gone from the system. Um, we've had people, even into the late afternoon, where they would have been drinking heavily the day before, and they may still test positive at 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, and that's it. Uh, the license is gone and all the consequences with that. Uh, before you leave us, uh, you have a special message uh, for our listeners this week? Absolutely. So we issued an appeal for information regarding an aggravated burglary that occurred in the Hill of Down area on the 16th of May. Detectives from Trim Garden Station arrested, interviewed and charged two males. They then appeared before Trim District Court and both were remanded in custody. We want to thank each and every person who contacted us with information for this incident and during all our investigations, we do rely on members of the public who have witnessed any criminal or suspicious behaviour to contact either their local Garda station or the Garda confidential line on 1800 treble one. OK, well, that's a, a very positive message to conclude with. Thank you for that and thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, that's uh, Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda station. We'll return to the Garda crime desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Uh, before we go, thanks uh, to Marie who says... Uh, it's funny that you uh, see politicians at uh, election time. They're at the doors uh, begging for votes and so on. But when you want them to help you, uh, they don't seem to be available. I'm not sure uh, what prompted
invited Marie uh, to contact us uh, with that. But thanks, as I say, for your text message to the show. Uh, and uh, thanks uh, to Joan, who was in touch to say, we all have to take responsibility for the problems uh, that members of uh, the Traveller community are having. Uh, if it's having an impact on their mental health, it's because of uh, the way we discriminate uh, against them. Thank you indeed uh, for that uh, as well. Joan, that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.